Today's reading is Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. A lawyer and an old man were sitting next to each other on an aeroplane on this flight. And the lawyer looked at this pensioner and felt very pleased with himself that he obviously was a lot more intelligent than this old guy sitting next to him. So he said to the old man, hey, let's, let's play a game to pass t- some of the time on this flight. The old guy wasn't interested. He kind of shook his head. And the, old man, and the lawyer said, well, look, we'll make it interesting. How about we do this? I will ask you a question. And if you can't answer it, you give me $5. But then you get to ask me a question. And if I can't answer it, I'll give you $500. And so the old man had a little thing and kind of nodded his head. And so the lawyer said to the old man, he said, well, here's my question. He said, what's the distance from the earth to the moon? And without saying anything, the old man reached into his pocket, pulled out a $5 bill, handed it over to the lawyer. There was a little pause, and then the old man said uh, to the lawyer, he said, um, what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four? And, uh, and he kind of sits back, closes his eyes, nods off, goes to sleep. Well, the lawyer doesn't know the answer, so he gets onto the internet, and he's typing away, searching on Google. He's sending emails to all of the people who work for him in his massive New York law firm, and it's going along for like an hour and a half. doesn't get any sort of response. So eventually he gives up, and he wakes up the old man, gives him $500. With the old man, without saying a single word, just pockets the money and goes back to sleep. But at this point, the lawyer is absolutely jumping up and down with frustration. So he, he, he turns around and he shakes the old guy and he says to him, Hey, wake up. He says, tell me, what goes up the hill with three legs and comes down with four? And the old man looks at him, doesn't say anything, just reaches into his pocket, pulls out five dollars and hands it over. <laughs> now, think about what makes that joke funny. Think about how it would have come across if it had been the pensioner who'd lost out, if it had been the old guy who'd kind of lost all the money, it would have been nothing like as funny. And I think partly that's because we hear this story and we think, oh, this lawyer is bigwig, he thinks so much for himself, he's entitled, he had it coming. He's the sort of person who's obviously a long way from God and, and you know, he, he's one of these characters and, he, he, oh yeah, he had it coming. He, it was owed to him that he had his comeuppance. And that's part of what we think when we hear a story like that. And, and, and we, we create lists of people who are like that, who we think God shouldn't really be interacting with. And yet Jesus comes to challenge us about our attitudes, about everyone, including those who are like that obnoxious lawyer. 
So uh, read along with me, and we're going to jump into this passage that we heard read to us this morning by Kelly. Uh, so page, if you're going to use the church Bibles, they're under your seats, page 878, when Luke 19. So we began by hearing these words. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So a bit of context. Uh, To finance their great world empire, the Romans put heavy taxes on all the nations under their control. And the Jews opposed this taxation because the money was spent on this secular government and also to help subsidize the worship of pagan gods. And so, uh, being good Jews, they didn't want to do that, but they were compelled to. It was this legal thing that they had to do. You had to pay these taxes to this occupying power. And what that meant was the tax collectors were amongst the most hated people in Israel. Uh, Some of them were Jews by birth, but they were choosing to work for the occupying army, for the Romans who'd conquered their territory. And so they were seen as being traitors. They were outcasts to Jewish culture and society. No one would speak to them by choice because they had so betrayed their people. More than that, most of the tax collectors were corrupt, and so not only would they charge you what the Romans wanted, but they'd have a whole slice on top of that, which went straight to them. And so they were corrupt, they were treacherous, they were untrustworthy people. And here we have Zacchaeus, who's not only a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. He's the one who trains and recruits and supervises all the other local corrupt ones. He is a baddie of the baddies. And here's this guy Zacchaeus in this town. Now, when we think about that today, um, uh, we have to apply it to our culture. Uh, Obviously, uh, we don't have tax collectors like they did back then. Uh, In fact, back then the culture was one where the Jewish leaders taught that it was was okay to lie to a tax collector. So just to be clear, I'm not saying that. If you do that, it's on your own head, be it. Um, Don't do that. But um, So maybe we don't have tax collectors like that today, but that doesn't matter because we still have a list of people whom we probably consider to be those people. People we look down on. People we don't associate with. Those people. And for us, it may sound something like this. Jesus entered Long Beach, and he made his way to one of the side streets downtown. There was a man there named Chuck, who was a well-known crack dealer in the city. Or there was a man there named Mason. He was a crooked doctor who overcharged all his patients. Or there was a woman there named Sydney. She sold her services by the hour. Or there was a man named Randall. He was that person everyone avoided because of his untrustworthy temper. Or there was a woman named Julia. Everyone knew she had abandoned her kids. Or, well, you get the idea, don't you? Zacchaeus is one of those people. Verse 3. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Uh, for Zacchaeus to be small in stature in Mediterranean times 2,000 years ago, he would have been absolutely tiny. He was probably under five foot. 
so he's really little, which means I'm an absolute giant in that world, which is good. Uh, verse 4, so Zacchaeus ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. This is interesting. Zacchaeus goes out of his way to see Jesus. He doesn't expect to talk to him or for Jesus to even acknowledge him or look at him, but he wants a glimpse anyway. And so he does this very undignified move for a man of his status. Uh, he, he runs and he climbs up this tree. And, I, and you think, well, why did he do that? And maybe the word was out. Maybe he'd heard about this guy, Jesus, who was a friend of sinners and even of tax collectors. And maybe Zacchaeus on the inside knows that he's both those things. And there's something that's longing for something more, for an answer, for a God who will reach out to him. There's, there's a hunger there. Perhaps he can't even put words to at this point. Verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Uh, one of the other translations, if you, the New Living Version puts it like this. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. You know, I was thinking about this. I, I bet Zacchaeus had quite a few nicknames, things that he was called in the city. Uh, can you imagine? He's a short guy. He would have been called Shrump, sorry, uh, Runt, uh, Oompa Loompa, Teeny Tot, whatever, Smurf, Troll. Uh, he probably didn't get called by his real name very much in public. Maybe when people saw him, they just called him traitor. They turned their back. They wouldn't look at him. He was perhaps called the crooked one. Worst of all, maybe people didn't even call him anything at all. Maybe he never heard his name being called. They just pretended he didn't exist. There's actually a little, um, almost like a, a joke that we're meant to hear if we understood the original language. The, the name Zacchaeus literally means pure or purity. So here's this man who lives a completely impure life. He, he's crooked, he's corrupt, he's treacherous, and yet his name is pure. So there's an irony, isn't there, about that? And yet Jesus calls him by name. And that's the sweetest sound any of us can ever hear when God calls us by name. Jesus doesn't treat him like a tax collector. He doesn't think of him as an evil traitor. There's no short people jokes. He, he doesn't treat him like a hopeless case. Instead, he calls him by name. Jesus actually redeems his name. He's saying to him, Zacchaeus, pure. This is who you were designed to be by God. This is the identity I'm calling you back to right now. Zacchaeus. He lets this man know that he's not been written off, even though other people have. God has not written him off. And then he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, this is, again, an extraordinary moment, because this would mean that Jesus would be sharing a meal with Zacchaeus. In Middle Eastern culture, to enter someone's home and to share a meal with them is a sign of deepest acceptance and of valuing that person, that uh, you and he or she, you, you have this friendship and you're proud to be seen with them. So for Jesus to invite himself to go and eat with him was an extraordinary symbol of acceptance, of, of love and of care for him. Notice that Jesus says, I must stay at your house. You could almost circle that in your Bible. Uh, it's like there's this drive that's, that's going on in Jesus' heart and in his life. He must visit with Zacchaeus. It's, it's like Jesus is hardwired to seek out those who are far from him. He's hardwired to, to show them how much he loves them, 
how much he cares for them, how much uh, he wants to get their stuff sorted out. And yeah, there's loads of stuff and that might need to be addressed, but that's not Jesus' starting point. Friends, listen, this is one of the things we learn about Jesus. He doesn't have a list of hopeless cases or worthless people. But he does have a list. Jesus has got a list of lost people, people who need to be found. And that's good news for all of us. It's good news for everyone. Listen to verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. And actually, for the crowd bit, we need to do it in a funny crowd voice. So uh, when the crowd saw it, they all, crumbled, they all grumbled. He's gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. Or something like that. You could do your own kind of crowd voice. But it's a kind of grumpy, moany, whiny voice from the crowd. So the grumbling crowd are there. And here's the thing. Once you have a list... You're upset with anyone who doesn't agree with what the names you've put on that list. And in fact, more than that, you're upset with someone who goes and talks to someone who's on that list. Someone who you think is too sinful to be even touched or approached. Someone who you think is too far gone, too far from God. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is more than just Zacchaeus saying, I'm sorry, or I want to go to heaven when I die. He's being so impacted by Jesus. He's saying, Lord, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor. Anyone I've ripped off, I'm going to give at least four times as much back to them as I took from them. Zacchaeus is having his life turned upside down by Jesus. Notice that he calls him Lord. He doesn't just call him teacher or or, 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 or in a rabbi or anything like that. He calls him Lord. It's a statement of faith. It's a declaration of trust in who Jesus is. He's submitting to his rule in his life. Having been in the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus is being transformed. He's thinking completely differently. He wants to respond by making right the wrongs that he's committed. He wants to get into a, more importantly, a right relationship with God. And then the story ends in verses 9 and 10, with Jesus declaring a blessing over Zacchaeus and his household. So we read verse 9. Jesus responded, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Hear those words, the Son of Man. That's who Jesus describes himself as. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is a complete outcast to the Jews. So he's not allowed to go and worship in the temple because he is a corrupt uh, tax collector. He's not allowed to join with the people of God. So he's, he's basically given up his Jewish identity. He's not welcome in that community, the community of faith. And yet Jesus says to him, you're a son of Abraham. For Jewish people, that's how you identified yourself. You're a a child of Abraham. You're in the family of Abraham. And so Jesus is re-bringing him back into the family of God in words that would make sense to Zacchaeus. He's welcoming him back in. And he's saying, you're loved, you're accepted. And then he gives this broader picture of how Jesus understands his own ministry, his own life. The Son of Man, which is an Old Testament term for, for for the Messiah, so Jesus is, The Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. And we see that theme wrapped throughout the Gospels. And I think it's the key way of understanding uh, how Jesus viewed himself. You see in the story of the prodigal son, the father who longs to be reunited with this runaway child who's done all these dumb and foolish things. And God is waiting to, to draw him back into his family, to welcome him, to embrace him. We have a God who seeks lost people. We have a God who seeks lost people in order to draw them not back into punishment, to draw them back into relationship with him so that they can receive his forgiveness and his new life and his hope. He is purposeful. He is deliberate because what our God does is he seeks in order to find. And the reason God seeks us, the reason God comes after all of us and all those we know is because we're in great danger, because we need a rescue. Uh, when we're talking about God coming to seek and save the lost, this is life and death stuff. This is not something that's just a kind of interesting, abstract, theological discussion. This is life and death stuff. We're talking about people's eternal destinies. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost so that they won't spend an eternity separated from God, but so that they'll have an eternity walking with God. And that begins from today going forwards. It's this amazing mission that Jesus is on to draw everyone back into the family of God, whatever mess, whatever list we found ourselves on. He's inviting us back in. There is no one who's excluded from this incredible invitation. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. And uh, before I go any further, I actually just want to say this morning, this one thing is very important. Some of you need to listen to this really clearly. If you are here today and you've never received this incredible gift that Jesus offers, this gift of being saved from the messes, from our sins, from the stuff we've got into, of being rescued from our lostness, our separateness from God. Then I urge you to respond to Jesus and respond to him today. To say yes to him like Zacchaeus did. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have to give away half your wealth like Zacchaeus did. Um, but what it does mean, though, is allowing God to be in charge of all of your life, including the part that has been most precious to you up to now. For Zacchaeus, it was his wealth. For us, it might be something different. But I want you to think about this amazing offer that Jesus gives us, that we can come to him as we are. We don't have to get stuff sorted in advance. We don't have to pass a holiness test. We can come as we are and receive this amazing gift of being restored to God, having this gift of salvation, and knowing God as our friend and being welcomed into his family and knowing the acceptance that we can get from no other place. So if that's you today, what I'll be doing in a few minutes' time when we wrap up the talk is I'm going to give a chance just for you to pray and to pray a prayer of commitment to Jesus. So I'll give you a few minutes just to think about that, to let that brew away. And um, I'll, as I say, we'll have a chance to pray together at the end of this talk. But for all of us now, and the rest of us, maybe you're in a place where you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. Uh, but what I want to do is take a few minutes to think about uh, this understanding Jesus has of himself, that he is called to seek and to save the lost, and how actually he's invited us to join him in that. 
because Jesus reaches into our lives. He's hope for many of us, I hope and believe he's sought and saved us, and we've known God's transforming power in our lives. But he doesn't just leave it there. What he does is he invites us to join him in his work of seeking, saving those around us, those in your neighborhood, in your workplace, those in your family, the people you spend time with, people you do life with. And we get to join him in this amazing ministry that Jesus has of seeking and saving the lost. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are commissioned to seek and to save. Not saving in your own strength, but you do it in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And that can feel scary. I don't know how it feels to you. It does feel quite scary when you think about it. Uh, you feel like, gosh, how can I possibly do this? I don't have the words. I'm not very eloquent. I'm, I don't know much theology. How can I do this? And yet Jesus calls us to do that. And he says he'll, he'll empower us. He'll help us do that. And what I want to do is take a few minutes and just give you some simple, simple tools that will enable you to do this, perhaps with greater confidence. And as I say them, you're going to go, duh, I, I can do that already. I do it already. And that's my hope. So hopefully there's nothing particularly new in what I share, but it will just encourage you, it will empower you to think, I can do this. And um, the theme, that, as I think about this, if I was going to summarize um, this, this concept, I would put it with a little phrase. My phrase is this. Discipleship, and, and by the way, discipleship simply means learning from Jesus, which is what is going on with Zacchaeus. He's beginning to learn from Jesus and walk towards him. Uh, when he says Jesus is Lord. So discipleship begins at hello. I'll say it again. Discipleship begins at hello. Just turn to your neighbor and say that. Discipleship begins at hello. So when we say discipleship begins at hello, the word hello, let's just clarify what we mean by that. So some of us may think it means uh, other languages. Well, it could mean that. Uh, It probably doesn't mean this. And it definitely doesn't mean this. It's a winning look there, guys. Uh, And it probably doesn't mean this either. (laughs) Instead, let's think of it a little bit like this. Discipleship begins at hello. Think about the greeting when you go into that barber shop or, or wherever it is you like to get a sense of community together. Look at Jesus. He says, hello, Zacchaeus, hanging out of the tree. And Jesus goes to his home. He treats him the same way as anyone else, even though Zacchaeus is an outcast. He's starting where Zacchaeus is at. He accepts him for who he is, but he calls him to be a disciple, to be a learner. Discipleship begins at hello. And friends, you will never know when you have the opportunity to disciple someone else, to help them hear Jesus' call and, how, and helping them respond in faith and obedience. It comes in the most unexpected and extraordinary moments. That's been my experience. God's done things with people through us. I've seen them do it through my children and through Hannah, with people I would never have thought possible with. And God can do extraordinary things at any time. You never know when you have that opportunity, which means every time and everywhere we go, we're thinking discipleship begins at hello. That's how Jesus does it. And here's three things that Jesus does that we can do the same. So here's, I'll give them to you, then we'll go through them one by one. So the three things are uh, spend time with lost people, look for spiritual openness, and be authentic. So let's do those in turn. Number one, spend time with lost people. 
We can't reach people far from God unless we actually spend time with them. Fairly obvious, isn't it? Think of it like this. Who likes being cold-cooled? Anyone like that? Okay, none of us do. It's because we're wired for relationships, as we heard Eric sharing earlier on. And so because of that, people around you are going to be influenced in the context of the relationships that you have with them. And so we hear the story. Jesus traveling down the road with his disciples. They spot Zacchaeus. They spend uh, time with him. They go to his house. And for, in some ways that feels, to Jews, that felt completely uh, not good. It felt not okay for Jesus to be doing that. And so what we have to do is take the same lesson, apply it in our lives. Where are the people around us who we'd love to see come to Jesus hanging out? And we need to go and hang out in those places. So where are they in your life? They're not necessarily going to be in the neat and tidy places. They might be in the smoking area. To use a good illustration today, if you're going to have the list of who's in and who's out. Oh yes, those people who smoke. I'm not a smoker, but I'm saying that's how it's viewed, isn't it? Or maybe it's the people who hang out at the bar. Or maybe it's the, the kids at school who, who kind of are a bit geeky and weird and don't really get welcomed onto the lunch tables. Or maybe it's the person at work who's just a little bit irritating and annoying. Or whoever. Maybe it's the nosy neighbour. Maybe it means you've got to intentionally hang out on the back porch with a few people and just, just, just be there, be present in their lives. Uh, I think what we have to learn to do is to prioritise making space for lost people. Too many of us who are followers of Jesus are so busy with life or we find excuses to be busy with life, we never make any space for that. And then we wonder why lives aren't being influenced by us. One of the things Jesus does that's so interesting is he embraces the interruptions. We need to learn to allow space to the interruptions and to embrace them. I know you can't always do that, but there's a sense of learning to slow down and not always be so rushed that we're constantly going to the next thing, that we have space to just pause and and, and linger and and marinate in those conversations, in those moments. It might just be for a minute. I'm not saying you have to stop the whole day, but sometimes it's just making those spaces in there. So, so a practical thing would be, how can you, as it were, schedule into your day, have an allowance of a little bubbles of space that you can bring into play at different moments, where you can just afford to linger and to spend time with people and allow them to encounter Jesus in you. And as we do that, then it's, as we again heard so beautifully earlier, it's coming with just this attitude of listening and um, as, as we listen and and, and dialogue and build relationships with them, we get to show the power of the acceptance that Jesus brings, the power of the acceptance that Jesus showed to Zacchaeus, we get to show to others. So the first step is this, simply spend time with lost people. Step, second step is, look for spiritual openness. Look for spiritual openness. Well, how do you look for spiritual openness, you might want to know, because it's not a physical thing. How do you see it? And I think the best way I'll describe it is this. I think what we're doing is we're trying to discern where God is already at work. Where is God already at work? So as you think about the relationships you have in life, the situations that you go into, it's almost like we're learning to pray, Jesus, where are you already at work and how do I get to join in with that? So I can imagine Jesus on this day praying and um, he's sensing the Father saying, I'm, I'm at work in Jericho. So Jesus goes to Jericho. And he's, he's attentive and he's looking, so where are you already at work? And it's like this sense of God's at work uh, in this particular town and as a person who's going to be encountering. 
so there's an intuitive aspect to this, which is one of the things. You get a sense in your spirit, God's at work, and some of you that will relate to. But I think also it's just being listening well. So it's listen to your friends' questions, just all the things your friends are, are, are asking questions about. Listen to your friends' longings, their dreams, their hopes, their goals they have for themselves, for their kids, for their community. Um, look at what people post on social media. So, uh, you know, if you've got classmates and they're posting on social media, what sort of stuff are they putting up there? Because often they'll be very candid. Uh, how do your relatives spend their money and spend their time? That will communicate a great deal to you. Uh, what do your neighbours say when they truly let their guard down? Maybe when they've drunk a bit too much, what sort of things are coming out of their mouths? Uh, uh, I was talking with Pat earlier on, and he shared me a, gr- a great quote, but there was this little phrase in there which said, ask questions one step riskier than the last time you talked, which I thought was a great line. Ask a question that's one step riskier than the last time you talked. And, and, and just your discerning spiritual openness. And that's why it takes time, because we have to build these friendships, not in a scout punting way, but in the authentic context of, of having friendships, but we're actually probing and we're just seeing well where's the Lord at work here and we're saying we're, we're one ear on the person one ear on God Lord where are you work here so look for spiritual openness and then thirdly and finally we need to be authentic be authentic uh, because what happens is this uh, we build these bridges of of uh, of relationships but then we don't quite know what to do when we get there and I think often what I've observed about uh, followers of Jesus is that um we, we kind of behave in a slightly weird manner when we think we're doing christian stuff and we stop being authentic who we are. And so one of the ways uh, we've tried, Hannah and I have tried to get around this is just we have a simple principle, which is we treat our non-Christian friends the same way we treat our Christian friends. I think too many Christians operate in a dualistic manner. In other words, they have one kind of mode when I'm in church, kind of put my church hat on and I operate like this. Then I look completely different when I'm with my people, friends who are outside of church. And I want to say that's wrong. I'd actually go so far as to say I think that's sinful, but that's a different conversation. But I think we should be authentic people. You should be the same wherever you go. And I believe that one of the reasons my friends who are not yet believers like me is because of the fact that I'm a spiritual man. They like that about me. They don't understand all, they don't agree with it all, but they still like the fact that I'm a spiritual person and I respond as a follower of Jesus in all the situations of life. Let me give you a few examples of, of, of how you might do that, how you might respond as a follower of Jesus. Um, the first thing that I ask myself when I'm with my friends who are not yet believers, but with processing life, the first question, this is the most challenging one actually, is this. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Because if, I mentioned Pat earlier, wherever he's gone, he's run off from me, oh he's down there. So you know, if Pat had come in this morning and said, oh I'm really frustrated about, um, you know, I don't know, my life at the moment or I'm not feeling well or whatever it was, one of the things I would do as a follower of Jesus, I'd say, Pat, can we pray about that? Let me pray for you now just about that because I believe Jesus loves to answer prayers. I think we should treat our non-Christian friends exactly the same way. So we've learned, we've just, just disciplined ourselves that that's what we do. We'll stop and offer to pray with people right here, right now, in people's lives. And what we find is that almost always people are blown away by the offer. They're so pleased and so blessed that someone would choose to stop and to pray with them and to 
start to reveal God's father love for them uh, and to, to care for them in that way. And um, I know we're fearful at that point. We think, well, what happens if the prayer isn't answered? So it's going to address that. So here's, here's the range of options that happens. It, at, at one extreme, maybe the prayer is not answered, okay, doesn't, or doesn't appear to be answered. But here's what I've found, is that people experience it as a genuine expression of love from you. Because they know that's you being authentic. And they think, okay, you're, you know, that Alex is a little bit kind of Jesus weird, but actually he prays his lovely prayers for me, and, I, and, and, and it's just him expressing love for me, and I really appreciate it. That's who he is, Okay. But then you get the whole range of things through to a range of the prayer starts to be answered in ways that become more and more tangible to them. So maybe, um, and we've had lots of these stories, you know, maybe God does bring healing into their lives or they really sense the presence of God in that situation or they do get an answer to a particular need and maybe a relational issue and that they'll know it's God who's done it. I mean, people aren't dumb. They know that when God intervenes, when they can see the, the cause effect link that happens there and then that makes the conversation completely different at that point so i'd really want to encourage you is is if if you take one thing take this can i pray for you and just make that a discipline a practice you do with colleagues and neighbors and family and friends a couple of things i've asked myself then we're going to wrap up i also think can i serve you just practically is there something i can do i think can i share my story which is just sharing about how god has been working in my life at this time What's he currently doing? And there's little bits you can share there. And then I'm also thinking, can I share God's story? Where you get to share something of the content of the gospel and you talk about who God is and the difference he makes in our lives. Um, so spend time with lost people. Look for spiritual openness. Be authentic. I want to encourage you to do these things as you think about uh, those who are not yet followers of Jesus, who you're having interaction with in your life. Uh, and... and just have real faith that as we believe discipleship begins with hello, God's going to be at work. He's going to be shaping lives around you.